It's the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. Evan is off today. Filling in is special guest host, Stephen Keyes. Greetings, Canada. Greetings, Canada. Welcome to the Evan Solomon Show. My name is Stefan Keyes, filling in for Evan today. I'm a CTV News anchor here in the nation's capital. It is beautiful and sunny outside, and we have a jam-packed broadcast for you today. We will be talking about the latest developments in Patrick Brown's disqualification. We'll talk to Tom Care about what's next for him. Will he appeal? Will that be successful? Also, if you've been paying attention to international headlines, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has resigned. He says he'll stay on until the next leader is chosen, but scandal after scandal has kind of killed his career. And then we'll talk a little bit about what's overhyped and what's underplayed within the next hour. But we're going to start off talking about airports in Canada. I know what you're thinking. Lost luggage, delays, cancellations. We've heard it all already. It's not fun to travel right now. But apparently, some are experiencing a different security check system. And this is a story that really grinds my gears. And I'm not sure if I'm more so triggered as a racialized individual who has complexities with hair and it being viewed as a spectacle, people not respecting the Afro or wanting to pet it or touch it as though it was something to be amused by or as instead of respecting personal space. One Montreal woman has been traveling quite a bit lately. She's a writer, lives in Montreal, and she has noticed that the last few times that she's hopped on a plane and gone through security at a Canadian airport, that they have insisted on checking her hair. Christine Rodriguez is a mixed-race individual. She has beautiful, long, curly hair, has tied it up in a ponytail to cross, but she goes through the body scanner, and then they insist on checking her hair. She's joining us on the line right now, and I want to hear from her about how she's feeling about this. Christine, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much. Of course. I want to hear from you precisely about how you felt the first time versus the third time when it seemed to become a trend for your experience? Well, that's exactly it. The first time was, you know, I kind of laughed it off. I was surprised. It it had never happened to me in my life. I'm 55 years old. Um, I've traveled um, a lot uh, prior, uh, you know, business career and uh, then for vacations. So this was the first time in my life I go through security and they say, we need to to touch your hair, to go through your hair. So I laughed it off um, by Mm. the third time. Um, within that, which was within about a month and a half of each other. By the third time, I'm um, I'm pretty flabbergasted because uh, it's just uh, it's just ridiculous um, the need to to actually touch my hair. Um, at that point, I took out an elastic, the elastic, and I shook my hair out, and I see I told them, you see, I have nothing in my hair. Right. This is ridiculous. Um, meanwhile, I'm seeing all kinds of other people who don't have curly hair, who have braids or elastics or whatever. And they're going through without any problem. And they're also kind of getting flabbergasted about the whole process that somebody actually has to put their hands in my hair to make sure I don't have anything in my hair. And between you and me, what could I possibly hold in my hair? It's just a ridiculous premise. And uh, I feel that just, you know, just showing my hair or just taking out my elastic, shaking my hair out should be enough. 
but no, they insist on actually running their fingers through my hair. Um, and I find that uh, just particularly invasive. I was just about to say, it sounds like such an invasive part of the experience. You know, a pat down is one thing. We're mm-hmm. all used to that. But for someone to run their fingers through your hair, I, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it almost feels like you're being groped. Yeah, well, it's not. Yeah, it's also just humiliating. Yeah, it's humiliating because they are the people of authority and then there's nothing you could do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, I, I completely respect the process of going through airport security. Um, you know, uh, taking the shoes off. I, I think we don't have to do that anymore. But, um, you know, taking out your laptop, emptying our pockets, you know, they, they have that little metal detector thing that they pat over people's bodies to when there's metal, um, you know, and I know sometimes, yeah, there you do have to get the pat down. Um, but uh, I think that, well, anyways, I don't know. The, the fact is, it's been three times. It's not random anymore. It's mm-hmm. systemic. And I and the other thing I will add is that I am not the only person going through this type of thing. Right. Um, there are other, when I posted, I have a lot of uh, black women who have uh, come forward to me saying, yeah, it happens to me all the time. Every time I travel, I have my braids checked. I have, well, you know, or I have my hair checked. Um, so... So it's frustrating um, because it's it's uh, just to have your hair checked. Is, it just seems like an absurd thing when you have other types of detect, detection tools um, where you wouldn't have to actually stick your hand in somebody's hair and squish it and see if they have something in their curls. Right, right. And, you know, I, I it almost feels, again, my disclaimer at the beginning was I'm a racialized individual. So I have certain experiences of my own that are similar to this, but it feels as though there's this automatic criminalization associated with race. Obviously, big hair, they're looking to see if anything's hidden in there, but if racialized individuals are the only ones being targeted or having their hair searched, it also feels like this criminalization uh, of how we look. Well, yeah, it becomes another form of, of profiling, right? And uh, there was a, an article that um, uh, that uh, another uh, organization, news organization did, and they found that um, it was an issue also in the United States with the scanners that a lot of people were the, the, the scanners themselves couldn't uh, couldn't really work well with curly hair mm-hmm. um so that's why i'm wondering is it is it the is it the scanners because i know that you go through the scanner and then if there's like some kind of alarm like you know just something that doesn't seem right the security person has to dig deeper to find out why the scanner detected uh, something right yeah. so um so i i, I yeah i i don't so it, i i don't know if it's a problem with the scanner i know that in the united states it was an issue with these scanners and so um, basically that means that every time I, it doesn't happen every time right. it's, it's been uh, uh, three. Well, so it's like a 50, 50 chance. My hair is going to get checked. Um, so it happened at Pierre Trudeau. It happened at, in Calgary and it happened at Billy Bishop airport. So it's national. It's not just the one airport. Right. issue. And then I guess it's up to the security agent's discretion. Now, I don't know because CATSA has not responded. Um, they keep saying, you know, oh, you have to file a complaint. And so, I, you know, I don't have any answers or explanation as to why this keeps happening to me. 
And with filing that complaint, what do you hope to get from them? More of an explanation? Do you want them to change their practices? Well, I want them to be uh, to be more culturally sensitive that, yeah, just, you know, insisting on, on going through uh, a Afro hair is intimidating and humiliating for people of African descent. And, uh, you know, I would imagine for anybody as well, if you're, you know, whatever, if you're Middle Eastern or whatever in your hair, you have very curly hair. Mm-hmm. It, it's, um, you know, there has to be a better way to treat people. Um especially if, if it's the scanner that can't read curly hair, it's like now the onus is placed on me to solve the problem. And it's, it, I didn't create it. I just was born with this hair. Um, so cultural sensitivity, because as you say, there's that history of how we're treated because of our hair That's right. or our ethnicity. And then I guess if the, there's a problem with the scanners, I think that, you know, something they, they have to, go back maybe like they did in the U.S. to the manufacturer and say, hey, can you solve this problem so that we don't have to stop people with curly hair every time they want to um, travel? Was it triggering for you? I know that Black women in particular have a a complicated relationship with hair, being pressured to yeah. straighten it, mm-hmm. curly hair, big curly hair being viewed as unkempt or unprofessional. Mm-hmm. Was that ex- triggering for you? It is. All those things pop pop up into my and not in my head but in my heart like you know it just you get a gut reaction so all the things you just mentioned uh, bubbled up inside me um especially like by the second and the third time right it, it was just was like no no this is ridiculous you can't keep stopping me every time i travel like it's just it's just it's just crazy so yeah listening to the evan solomon show evan is away so filling in is special guest host stefan keys welcome back to the evan solomon show my name is stefan keys ctv news anchor here in the nation's capital thank you so much for being with us we love to engage with you so please feel free to text in your thoughts 710 Right now, we're going to be talking about the latest developments when it comes to the conservative leadership race. Patrick Brown, considered a fair contender, Pierre Poiliev considered the front runner, disqualified over allegations he describes as vague and anonymous. And now he's also pointing fingers. And if you missed it, here's what he had to say. We know where this is coming from. It was Pierre Poiliev supporters on Leoc uh, that were pushing this. Uh, clearly, uh, their campaign wanted me out of the race. So that's what he's saying. But Conservative Party President Rob Batherson actually says quite the opposite. Here's his take. The allegations uh, came actually from within Mr. Brown's uh, camp. And uh, I'd love to be able to share for, to everybody uh, all the information uh, that the uh, party has uh, obtained. But the reality is now that uh, this is a matter for Elections Canada. A matter for Elections Canada, investigations underway. Here to help us unpack all of these political infighting, Tom Alcare, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader. Tom, brother, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't July supposed to be a really quiet month? I know the house isn't sitting. We're supposed to be at the cottages, taking time off. And here we go. My goodness, they're going to bat the Conservative Party. (laughs) 
and Johnson resigning in the whole nine yards. Yeah, they really are. Well, they're going to bat and they're, you know, to steal a, an expression from the original Godfathers, they're going to the mattresses. Mm. This is going to get really tough before the courts. Look, uh, Brown has just uh, hired uh, Marie Annan. She, you might re recall her name from the uh, Gian Gomeshi trial. She's also the person who represented Admiral Mark Norman. And whoopsie, all of a sudden the government backed up completely in that file. Right. She is a tremendous lawyer. I'm a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for over 40 years. I have to tell you, she's one of the best in, in my generation. Um, I, I've, I've never seen anybody uh, win such a succession of cases uh, so convincingly. So anybody in, on the conservative side who thought this was just going to be like easy, right? You, right? you send out a tweet at 10.50 on Tuesday night from Ian Brody. By the way, Ian Brody is a real gentleman in all my dealings with him. I, I've got nothing but good things to say about the Tom, are you there? I think we lost your audio a little bit. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you 10 okay. on 10. Have you got me back? Yeah, I got you back now. So here's the deal. There was a case back, you know, when they were having a, a leadership race to replace me back in 2017. Right. The NDP simply said there was this candidate from Toronto. He's no good. We're not going to keep this guy. But what happened was he went to court and the judge said something interesting. He said, no, the NDP's followed its own rules. And by the way, this is fair process. But he, he had a word for the NDP and any other political party. He said, look, leadership races are the foundation of our political system. We're not like Americans. We don't vote directly for, for the president of the US. We vote for the leader of a political party and the party that gets the most seats gets to form government. And that is therefore extremely important that these races be clean and well-monitored and well-controlled. So lo and behold, the Conservatives' first line of defense will be, well, every candidate signed a little paper and we have this section of, of our bylaws that says you can't review any of this stuff. Uh, you know, judges can't review any of this. But that's not true. Uh, mm. <laughs> Marie Henné will get this before the courts. She'll have before the courts, I would predict, next week at the latest. And she's going to go after this hammer and tongs because even though I found some parts of of his, <coughs> excuse me, some parts of his explanation wanting, I think he's doing a pretty darn good job of fighting back. <laughs> and so you think this appeal could probably go in his favor? I think that uh, Patrick Brown has a lot in his favor. First of all, who are the people making this decision? Mm -hmm. Are they people who have any interest in this? Are they judges in their own case? Have they listened to both sides? Those are essential questions of matrimony. Yeah, no, as you said, Tom, it is pretty essential to this case. You know, he talked about Leoc and them leaning towards Poiliev. You know, it's, a, it's scandalous allegations in terms of the party favoring one candidate in this race and maybe trying to get the other out and when it comes to what I, what i said at the beginning Stefan, yeah you know stephen harper's former ian brody is not just some guy from the conservative party he's stephen harper's former chief of staff and i'm not saying that that to cast aspersions on him it's just a simple reality jenny byrne former chief organizer for harper now one of the main advisors for quite so the Harper camp has a very long reach, and they're in there for sure, you know, on the Poiliev campaign. The most senior conservatives I've been able to speak with about this are adamant that Harper is absolutely favoring Poiliev. Okay, he's allowed to do that too. But here's the rub. If all of that comes together, and by the way, I don't think that Patrick Brown is the prime target here. 
if they were indeed to succeed in eliminating Patrick Brown, a lot of the people who signed up to vote for Patrick Brown mm-hmm. would simply abstain. They wouldn't bother throwing it, you know, sending in their packages. That is the only plausible road to, to victory for Jean Charest. He's always been very clear that his campaign is about winning 100 points per riding. He knows he doesn't have as many memberships as Poitiers, but Poitiers is very concentrated in Western Canada. Charest has got a lot of Quebec, he's got a lot of Atlantic Canada, and he's got his fair share of Ontario. So it was going to be a fight. But if you get rid of those, let's assume that the number is real, those 100 to 150,000 people who had signed up for Patrick Brown, there's no longer a second choice possible for Jean Charest. And it's going to get very tricky because the party now is in the position where several party functionaries, bureaucrats, are essentially taking it upon themselves to render a decision that effectively decides the result of the leadership race. That's where they are right now. And that's why this is so tricky. Right. When it comes to the broader outlook and what this signals to the entire country, you know, there's this whole phrase of don't air out your dirty laundry. The, the conservatives are supposed to be a family, and then we see all this fighting take place. Does that damage their brand overall? Yes, very great question, and I think you're completely right. But there's something else here. You say they're supposed to be one family. What dirty laundry is being aired here is the fact that they've never become one family. Mm. The more extreme right-wing, social conservative side, the Stephen Harper side, the Canadian Alliance side, the Reform Party side, they do not tolerate the Jean Charest side, the Patrick Brown side, which is the progressive conservative side. So there's no doubt in my mind that the Poiliev camp and everything that I just described that comes with it is going to pull out every stop, not just to block Charest and or Brown, but to make sure that that vision, that progressive vision for Canada, where you have a social conscience, where you actually care about the environment, they do set, seem largely eye to eye on a lot of economic issues, but especially on social and environmental issues, they're, they're worlds apart. And Harper has always made it clear that he cannot stand that progressive conservatism of Jean Charest in particular, doesn't want to go back to that era, thinks that he had, he's killed that party, and certainly doesn't want it coming back from the grave. Yeah, Tom, we only have a few seconds left here, but I did want to ask you your thoughts on Patrick Brown coming forward and, you know, defending himself, but also feeling almost like he's on a bit of an island. He's the mayor of Brampton and his own city councillors are saying, well, we have issues with him as well. Well, he, he is a cat with nine lives. I mean, he he got elected mayor of Brampton after having lost the leadership of the Ontario PCs right. over an allegation of sexual misconduct that turned out to be not true. Uh, the way it had been spun anyway in, in the stories. So, uh, he, you know, he, he survived. He came back into politics. And now, you know, he's even had things that he's had to, been found to have been, uh, uh, you know, offside on uh, political financing, for example, in the past. The guy keeps coming back. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet anything against Patrick Brown at least being able to win a serious round before the courts on this one. The real question is, will he have been mortally wounded? And will his voters come out to vote nonetheless? And I think that that's the major problem here. This is clearly, instead of attributing the motive that this is what they're trying to do, let's just talk about the fact. This will have the effect of determining the outcome of the leadership race. It will have been given to Pierre Poiliev, which is what a lot of the people we've just talked about actually wanted from the start. Is that their motive? We don't know. All right. Thanks for this, Tom. I got to let you go. Great Great to chat with you. 
The Evan Solomon Show continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Sitting in for Evan Solomon, here's special guest host, Stefan Keyes. Hello, everyone. I'm Stefan Keyes. Thank you so much for listening to The Evan Solomon Show. We love to have you, and we also love to hear from you. Coming up in about 10 minutes from now or so, we want to talk about a viral video on TikTok. It shows a nurse bending over, crying, clutching herself, grieving the loss of a patient with a particular song playing in the background. And a lot of people are responding to it with backlash. Not so much sympathy, but almost suggesting it's in poor taste. So we want your opinion on it. We're going to take your calls. We're going to take your text messages. Text 71010-71010. Or you can give us a call at 1-855-633-1010. We really want to hear from you about that. Right now, though, In case you missed it, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has resigned, saying it's clearly the will of the Conservative Party that there should be a new leader. Now, the Cabinet Office Minister Michael Ellis says the government will continue to function as normal despite the current political crisis. And Johnson says he's disappointed that it has come to this. He wanted to carry out his mandate and fulfill his full term, thought he was doing a good job and was elected to do that job. But scandal after scandal... He says it's time. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new prime minister. So that's him conceding. He's Again, he's going to stay on until a new prime minister is chosen. And he conceded that this is not just what the country wanted. It's what his party wanted. I know that there will be many people who are relieved and... Uh, Perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. You just heard him talk about people being relieved. Here's what a Conservative voter had to say. I'm a Conservative, but Boris has to go. He's a disgrace. A disgrace. My goodness, that is strong language people feeling strongly over in the uk daniel hamamchin lives in london ctv news national correspondent danielle how are you my friend i'm uh, i'm good it's been a it's been an interesting 72 hours to say the least i bet i bet you know what it doesn't it's more than just egg on his face it feels like a bucket of yolk is what boris johnson is is wearing right now are you surprised that it's come to this considering everything the criticism leading up to this resignation? Um, I mean, I was at Downing Street uh, this morning for his resignation. I did not believe it was going to happen until I saw him there, only because, um, you know, when they say that Boris Johnson would, you know, he would only leave kicking and screaming. It's, it's tr- He's, um, you know, we knew that he would stay on until the very end. But even yesterday, mm-hmm. after the flurry of resignations. I mean, for those who are just tuning in, it started with two cabinet ministers resigning on Tuesday at 6 p.m. And by yesterday, it had ballooned into, you know, dozens and dozens, ministers, junior ministers and aides. What that means is that there are so many vacancies that some of the departments had nobody below a cabinet minister. So you've got a dysfunctional government, a government that cannot function because there's nobody there. Um, And so yesterday there was a delegation of cabinet ministers, among them very close allies to the prime minister, 
among them a minister who had just been appointed the day before following the initial resignation, but they told him, sir, you have to go. It is time to step down. And even then he rejected those calls. Uh, But after perhaps a good night's sleep um, and more resignations this morning, he realized that this was untenable. Wow. Wow. So dramatic. Such a dramatic way to get out. You know, people have called him messy, and this is certainly a bit of a messy exit as well. Remind us of some of his blunders along the way. Obviously, the party during the pandemic with the lockdowns, when that came out, people reacted strongly to that. But there's definitely more going on that sometimes doesn't make it across the pond. Well, I mean, Partygate was huge because people could relate to it. I mean, people were not spending time, final moments with loved ones who were ill because this prime minister and his staff had made up those rules, rules that they themselves then um, broke. Um, They had parties (laughs) during the lockdown, and then they dispatched and told ministers to go out there and deliver lines that turned out to be not true. And that's what one of the first ministers to resign. That's what he said in the House yesterday, you know, to 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 get asked to go out there and say X when X is not true. I mean, enough is enough. Um, And for him, it was it was the line between integrity and loyalty. But that's not just, you know, it's not just for British politics. I think parliamentarians and politicians all over the world will recognize that. In terms of other scandals, I mean, what did it for him this time is the Chris Pincher um, scandal. And this is, until last week, this conservative MP was the deputy chief whip. Um, He stepped down because the previous night he was accused of having groped two men at a private club. The issue here is not that incident. It's the issue of wait, hang on a second, there, were, there was a history of sexual misconduct stemming back to 2019, and Boris Johnson, it turns out, knew about it. He initially told the House he didn't, and then he did, and then his story wasn't clear, but it turns out he admitted that he did know, and it was a mistake, he said, to have promoted him to Deputy Chief Whip. When, when that apology came out and that admission, that's when the minister said, enough, we're, we're done. Okay. How long is it going to take to replace him? And who are we looking at right now? Because I think there's a, a name floating out there already. There are many names floating out there. I don't know if the Canadians will, uh, will, it will ring a bell to Canadians. Yeah. I mean, Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid were the two ministers, the first two ministers to quit. They thought, you know, they might be in the mix. Um, Boris Johnson doesn't think he's going anywhere for now because he said he'll stay in office until a successor is chosen. That could take weeks, if not a couple of months, because the can, the leadership race, um, to, to, to really simplify it, every candidate has needs the backing of eight conservative MPs. They'll throw their hat in. There'll be a series of votes up until they narrow it down to two. And then the party membership, 100,000 people will vote. A new leader will be um, elected. Boris Johnson will tender his resignation to the Queen. We will have a new British prime minister. Um, Today, a former Conservative prime minister, John Major, said he cannot stay for three months. He's He's lost the support of his cabinet, of his government, of his parliamentary party. For him to stay on for three months is unwise and it's unsustainable. Uh, But it's Boris Johnson we're talking about. So... um, Many would like to see him leave immediately, but it's quite possible it'll take another few months before he physically leaves Downing Street. Okay. 
And tell us more about how uh, some of the voters are responding. I think, I mean, look, Boris Johnson is known for his bravado, his right. sense of humor. He's, you know, he plays fast and loose with the truth. That is something that's often been said about him. People tend to shrug his sh- their shoulders when it's, oh, it's Boris, you know. Um, and some find that endearing. He delivered Brexit, and that was very important for those who supported Brexit. Uh, but in the end, I think that, you know, when I listen to a lot of call-in radio shows and people just say, I regret voting for him. Wow. Um, I, I sh- we know. And um, so I think that uh, it's it's hard to see. You know, he's rarely showed shown any contrition in the House of Commons. Uh, and today he didn't show any at all during his resignation speech. So that, uh, that came to no surprise, really. Okay. Danielle, I'm no surprised, yeah. We really thank you for this. Appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, take care. Thank you, Stefan. Now, CTV national correspondent Danielle Hamamshin, who is in London, telling us about Boris Johnson stepping down as British Prime Minister. He wants to stay on until a successor has been chosen. That could take some time. And this is a politician that has been on the world stage. We know that he has a strong relationship with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. He said he didn't want to see him go anywhere because he felt that he backed them on this issue. There are several repercussions that come along with this resignation. As Daniel mentioned, many people have stepped down, pressuring him to step down himself, tendering their resignations. Lots more to come on The Evan Solomon Show. I'm Stefan Keys filling in. Again, we want to hear from you. Lots to come on the other side. This is The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Today with special guest host, Stephen Keyes. Hello, Canada. We want to hear from you for this next topic. I really need your opinion on this one. Here's our number, 1-855-633-1010, 1-855-633-1010, or text us at 71010. 71010. What's the hot topic you say? Well, there's this viral TikTok video of this nurse who says she just lost a patient and she puts her grief on the internet. She's hunched over. She's clutching her knees. She's leaning against the wall. She's grabbing her forehead. She's shedding tears. And this is the music that's playing underneath. The caption reads, lost a patient today. Later in the video, it says, shake it off. You have five more hours. Clearly, this nurse in particular was not expecting to receive the backlash she received. This took off millions of views and people are reposting it, criticizing her, saying that she's exploiting her grief that it's disrespectful to the patient that just died, that it was in poor taste 
Now, the TikTok user, her handle Olivia underscore Tyler 33, has since deleted her account. But that has not stopped the video from making the rounds all over the world. People have reposted it, saying, quote, Imagine walking into the hallway and seeing this. Another person writes, I understand raising awareness on the difficulties of being a healthcare professional, but this feels like a patient was just exploited for likes and views. There are other ways to share experiences. This way was not tasteful. Andy J. Scott writes, Let me set up the camera so I can cry. And then post it on TikTok with a song all about me. What do you think about this? Is this insensitive or is it just her way of coping? And should we not cast that stone and judge her for being publicly vulnerable? We're already receiving some text messages about this. Someone writes to us saying, how would you feel if you went to the hospital and the nurses were crying in the hall? In this environment, emotions are best kept in private. The focus should be to give patients confidence in the system. Someone writes, Stefan, my mom was a nurse in Ottawa for 30 years. When you care for people, the reason most go into nursing, you can be deeply affected by the loss of a patient. Nurses, not doctors, spend 95% of the patient-caregiver interactions. I saw it firsthand when a patient who was friendly and kind passed away. Not exploitation. Genuine feelings. That's from Chris in Ottawa. And that's certainly true, Chris. My aunt worked in healthcare for decades as an RPN. She became very close to some of her patients and their families. And they tend to grieve with those families. You see them on a daily. You care for them. You take care of them. You build rapport with them even a friendship with them. You know them by name. They tell you their stories, their life history. You help them cope, and you ultimately hope that they heal. And so when you lose them, you feel it too. But in a professional setting, I guess people are wondering if you have to compartmentalize your own feelings for what some may say is the greater good. But I don't think the grieving process is what's in question here. I think it's the choice to film the grief and post it online. Someone else writes, it was very unprofessional, and I honestly think she should lose her job for that because, God forbid, if she lost one of my family members, I would bury her myself. Very strong reaction there. Someone else writes, I believe she has real and palpable grief, but making a video and using that extremely trendy song just reeks of me, me, me. And that's certainly a symptom of social media, right? That it's become this vanity tool. It is what some psychologists have said is breeding narcissism. That it's making narcissism trendy. For the adrenaline rush, that dopamine hit that you get from the approval of likes and views and going viral, that we crave this sense of online fame. And I did have a question. I watched it, and I thought it was interesting to see that on display. But at the same time, I'm looking at it saying, who's filming this? 
did you put a camera on a tripod? Did you you find a cart in the hallway and set up a phone to to act this out? Is this theatrical in a sense? We want to take a caller. Alan from Toronto is on the line. Alan, what are your thoughts on this? Let me hear you. Yeah, it's it's obvious obvious that it's self serving. I mean, you know, when my parents passed away, you know, sure I was grieving, but I didn't make a TikTok video, didn't make a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I dealt with it, you know, between me and my family, what have you, and that was it. So it's obvious that she's looking for likes and, 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 and so on and so forth. So I, I think in this case here, you know, um, yeah, backlash is, uh, is justified. You think it's warranted? You know? I, it's warranted. I mean, you know, especially adding the music to it and so on and so forth. I mean, you, you, you can see the, uh, the amount of production that went into it. So for sure, it wasn't a reaction. It wasn't something, um, you know, that uh, happened all of a sudden. She whipped out her phone and... You know, look at how much work we have to do. We're overworked or you know, we're stressed, whatever. Yeah. No, this was a production, and and yeah, it uh, it for sure deserved the backlash. It was warranted. Is it important for us to see it that though, right? If we don't see it, can we truly appreciate what nurses go through on that end? Sure, because everybody has gone or will go through a loss. Um, you know, whether a spouse, a parent. Uh, a friend, you know, so so everybody can sympathize. So, you know, they they can for sure. And 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 two, I mean, did she get the permission of this patient's uh, family? I mean, that would be another question. For sure. And to be you fair, know? she was the only one on camera. We don't know who the patient is. Their privacy has been protected. Um, no, but a hundred percent. But I wouldn't want any of my family being used in a TikTok production, you know, regardless of whether they're uh, being shown on it or not. I, I would think that would be in poor taste and inappropriate. So, you know, that, that's another aspect. You know, so again, I, I you know, I, I, I think there's something, something there, a little bit narcissistic, what have you. And maybe it's me being cynical. I don't know. But uh, I think it was in poor taste. And, you know, if you're grieving, sure, not an issue. Understand that. I mean, okay. nurses... Nurses go through quite a bit. Quite All a right, bit. Alan. Thank you so much for the call. Appreciate your perspective. We've got to take a quick break, but the Evan Solomon Show will be back right after this. It's the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. Evan is off today. Filling in is special guest host, Stephen Keyes. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on the Evan Solomon Show. My name is Stefan Keyes. CTV News Anchor here in Ottawa. It's a beautiful, sunny day. We hope you're enjoying your day as well. And it is that time. It is Thursday. Overhyped or underplayed? Overhyped. Great jobs and opportunity. In this election, here's what I want to do. Or underplayed. 
My goodness, Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator and former communications director for Prime Minister Paul Martin. Thank you so much for being with us this Thursday yet again. Hey, my pleasure. Nice to uh, nice to meet you, Stefan. Yes, uh, nice to meet you as well. <laughs> so clearly, you know what we're going to start things off with. Patrick Brown, disqualified from the conservative leadership race. He says he was shocked to learn about it. He's pointing fingers at Pierre Poiliev, the front runner, saying his supporters want him out. That's the only way he's going to win. The political infighting is on national display for the entire country to see. And some people, you know, I interviewed people yesterday in Pierre Poiliev's writing, kind of, you know, shrugged at it and said it comes with the territory of, of politics. Overhyped or underplayed, my friend. Oh, man, you can't underplay this thing. Uh, <laughs> you cannot underplay this. I don't think here, for this very fact, like just this sole fact, I don't think, and I stand to be corrected by political historians who may be lurking on the airwaves, mm. I don't think there's ever been a major candidate of a, of a leadership contest um, disqualified uh, like this. Like, I just can't think of a precedent. And, you know, to me, it's, um, it's astonishing. But, you know, I, I find it like not built for radio, I suppose, but I am one giant eye roll when I listen to Patrick Brown deflect and distract from this. And, and, and people who've listened to me before here on this show and others, like they will know that I believe we should all get up every morning, put on both socks, both boots and go out in service to the cause of stopping Pierre Polyev. Okay. Like I genuinely believe <laughs> that his grievance politics is the gravest threat uh, to the institutions we care and love about. And I think he ought to be met on the main, in the main square of democracy and he needs to be beaten. I really genuinely, truly believe that. But I have 100% sympathy for his defenders in this circumstance because, right. I mean, Patrick Brown, like, what, it makes zero sense what he's saying. There's a giant conspiracy mm -hmm. that involves large portions of the Conservative Party. They are trying to excommunicate him. They're doing it because Pierre Polyev is so scared of Patrick Brown, who, let's face it, was getting thumped by Pierre Polyev. Paul, Pierre Polyev is lapping the field. He is yeah. driving tent poles into this race. Like, it's over so the idea that he needed someone to rig a race that he was winning fair and square, that it was all done for these reasons, as opposed to, let's look at the other side of the ledger, yeah. a guy who was found guilty on four counts of ethics violations in the Ontario legislature, who was drummed out of his job as leader in a swirl of scandal and controversy. A guy who now also stands accused uh, from five city councillors in Brampton of malfeasance and financial irregularities at the municipal level. I mean, federal, provincial and municipal, this guy, where he goes, allegations of misconduct and irregularity follow. So, sorry, you get zero benefit of the doubt from me, buddy. Yeah, no, the canvas isn't clean. The image isn't squeaky clean either. What stood out to me, though, Scott, is that he said he... Didn't even know why he was in trouble. Called the allegations anonymous. They're vague. He doesn't know and they're not revealing this, that, and the other thing. I'm Like, how can he come out and say that after, firstly, we've heard from the Conservative Party saying that they posed several questions to investigate and he did not come back with sufficient answers to satisfy them and stop them from disqualifying him. 
Look, I, I think it's justifiable to put to the conservatives, uh, the party headquarters and those running the leadership race, um, why it is that they won't be more transparent with the nature of the allegations. And it may be that there are good reasons. Mm -hmm. Like they may say, listen, we think that because we've referred it to the elections commissioner, we don't feel that we should be sharing those details. Um, maybe there are other constraints. I don't know. But as you point out, Again, this is a, entirely dubious on the part of Brown. So he's saying that what that that he was kept in the dark by his own the senior members of his own team, who for what two to three weeks it sounds like have been dealing with senior party officials. Like I, I don't believe that. So um, you know, and here's the other thing: uh, if he's guilty, and he maintains he isn't, but if he's guilty, he damn well knows what the allegations are about because he's a full participant in them. So right. I, and I just like. I'm sorry, man. I just, I have a whole lot of trouble buying what this guy's selling. I really, really do. Like none of it, none of it seems square to me. And so, you know, and here's the other thing. Yeah. I, I, the conservative party has no interest in creating this controversy, right? They've got their hands full already, right? Pierre Polyev is a divisive figure, maybe not within the conservative party, but broadly. People know that. They recognize that this guy's rubbing uh, people a, a bunch of different ways. They recognize that they're going to have a job of reuniting their party post-leadership race, even if Pierre wins by a thumping uh, mandate. You know, he's still, there's lots of high-profile conservatives who said, no, this is no good. So they're gonna, they've got all of that. The last thing they need, on top of that is to be marred with the word corrupt, financial irregularities, mm -hmm. scandal. They don't need this headache. They would not have provoked it. They wouldn't have brought it on themselves unless they felt that there was no choice. It just doesn't make sense. You don't. You would not do such a dramatic thing unless you felt you had no alternative but to do this dramatic thing. So everything they say makes sense and adds up logically. Nothing that Brown says adds up and makes sense logically. And here's the other thing that I'm wondering as well, right? Because Brown is saying... Pierre Poilievre of supporters, this big conspiracy against him to get him out, the scandal, this, that, and the other thing, to the point where the parties come forward and said, actually, the whistleblower is from your camp. And maybe that's why they're lacking a bit of transparency, because revealing too much may burn their source. Who knows? I'm sure, but, I mean, they've almost certainly they've burned him already. I know the Brown says he knows nothing about any of this, but, you know, if it was a lawyer right. from their side who had access to information of this sort, mm -hmm. which, by the way, if you're doing something like this, which you're not supposed to, presumably it would be a tight circle who would know about it, um, then they know who uh, their uh, their whistleblower is. They know who their leak is. Um, you know, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just like, on and on. They're... I know he's putting up this big stride and I'm the victim defense. We've seen it before from him. Um, doesn't hang together. All right. couple minutes before we go, I want to ask you if this is overhyped or underplayed. COVID-19, seventh wave. I mean, I'm kind of like, when do we stop counting waves? But the ArriveCan app is sticking around and people seem to have a problem with that because we now are learning that the federal government says that they're going to keep the data they're collecting. And I think people are having issues with that one way or the other. Is that overhyped or underplayed i i kind of think it's overhyped but it's within a context that is not it can't can't be overhyped and that is the frustration people feel about their ability to book the flights they want to get mm -hmm. through our airports to manage their way uh through these uh th you know through these ports and you know it's obviously a disaster i find it's overhyped in the sense that you know a ton of noise gets created about the app right. and i I know that there are people out there who are stuck in lines and they haven't downloaded the information and they're fumbling with it. I cannot believe for the life of me 
that the, that that the majority of our challenge, or even a significant minority of our challenge, is based around people inputting their data into this app. Uh, I just don't think that that's the remedy to what's ailing our airports right now. Um, so in that sense, I think this thing's overplayed. Perfect. Scott Reed, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure to listen to you on the radio with Evan. So glad I had this opportunity to chat with you myself. Awesome, buddy. Uh, great to meet you, and I hope to meet you sometime face-to-face, uh, -face, uh, glass to glass, as they say. Most definitely. Cheers. You enjoy your day. You too. Cheers. Thank you. That was Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator, former communications director for Prime Minister Paul Martin, breaking down the Paul Brown uh, disqu disqualification and Patrick Brown, rather, disqualification and as well as the Arrive Can app situation. We have lots more to come very shortly. We want you to stick around. This is The Evan Solomon Show. I'm Stefan Keys, guest hosting for today. listening to the evan solomon show evan is away so filling in is special guest host stefan keys greetings everyone evan is away so i'm here to play my name is stefan keys ctv news anchor here in the nation's capital for this next segment we're going to talk about the war in ukraine it rages on lives have been lost families have been divided mothers and children seeking refuge in other countries Husbands and fathers, sons staying back to help fight, defend their country. Russian strikes continue and they're being blasted. Canadians have been trying to do all they can to help, whether it is opening up their homes, opening up their wallets for humanitarian aid. Or, for example, if you're someone like Bob Beckett, former fire chief for Langford on Vancouver Island, you would have gone over yourself, made that trip to offer some help. Bob, thank you so much for being with us. I want to hear from you about what you saw firsthand. We see things through a political lens, through politicians, and through reporters' lens, through journalists. But for yourself as a first responder, tell us what it was like for you. Uh, thanks very much, Stefan, for, first of all, your interest in the story. Um, it was an extremely emotional trip. This is not my first trip. I've been on many humanitarian uh, trips around the world, and, and including two war zones before. Um, but to see firsthand uh, the challenges and the difficulties uh, that that uh, all Ukrainians are, are facing, um, it, it uh, is extremely moving. Uh, but they're a very uh, resilient people. Um, they are determined to beat uh, the Russians and to gain their freedom uh, and hopefully long-term long peace. And so you were in the Lutz region of Ukraine, correct? That's correct. That was where we were staying. We were in the Bolain region, which is in the northwest corner, um, right on the Belarus border. Um, that's where we were doing most of our work. And when we talk about humanitarian aid and goods, what exactly? Maybe give us a list of the needs. Well, they're, they're huge and they're growing every day. Wow. Um, 
we were sending over uh, food goods. Uh, um, um, we were uh, bringing uh, eight transport truckloads in from Turkey. We had uh, large air transport coming in from Heathrow out of London, and we had fire fighting and rescue gear coming in from from Toronto. One of the one of the goals, however, to be you know more sustainable and to put something back into the economy is that we were brokering deals with uh, local organizations and and businesses there to buy locally and distribute um, throughout the entire country. So that that was the the key component of it. And then out of that, as a result of the relationship and the fact that um, uh, Mayor of Lankford, uh, Mayor Stu Young, was with us. Um, uh, we established uh, four sister uh, communities, four sister cities, and I'm also a school board trustee. We established uh, four uh, partnerships with four school districts to continue to support during the war and after the war. Wonderful. And so you're working with Global Medic, the relief team there, and you guys just came back. And obviously, I would imagine the need for medical equipment is extreme and great as well as you try and take care of the wounded. Yes, it is. Uh, one of uh, one of our leaders over there, uh, Ukrainian doctor, um, was telling us, and and this is uh, you know the great uh, great work of Global Medic, how nimble they are. Um, the doctor indicated that uh, because of the infrastructure being missiled, bombed, destroyed, uh, they were having problems with potable water, and they they needed. Um, um, you know, pills um, um, to to treat the water to make it safe because people were coming down with all sorts of GI infections and and were, were very very ill. We just simply uh, called back to Toronto and got them on the next flight out. So you know that's how nimble they are. Um, she also mentioned that you know they are dealing with an awful lot of trauma injuries. Um, and we've set up uh, arrangements uh, for a Vancouver-based doctor, surgeon, to give them a hand in coordinating and addressing some of their needs. This has been going on for quite some time now, talking for months plus almost two weeks, I think. Have they felt that they are receiving, not receiving enough support, they're always imploring for more, but that we at least haven't grown weary of you know continuing to support or talk about what's the situation for them over there Stefan you you just nailed it on the head um uh, you know i mentioned at the top of the you know the interview how resilient they are um but they they did one of the first things they said is um aside from thanking us for coming over and standing with them they said they are really concerned the world is going to get war weary and this will, you know, uh, fall back on uh, um, the back burner. Uh, they said, it, you know, today, now, we, we need help more than ever. And the one thing that was clear, aside from the humanitarian needs, which are, are absolutely urgent, they said, please, please, please appeal to Canada, appeal to every free country yeah. to provide us with the uh, defense weapons so that we can shoot down the missiles, so that we can... Uh, win this war and and push the Russians back, um, you know. And I never thought I would say that, but this is absolutely critical that we give them whatever means necessary so that they can gain their freedom. That's so powerful. I recall the royals visiting the nation's capital, and 
there was a Ukrainian mother with her two sons that had an opportunity to just briefly chat with, with them. And when we asked what she said, she just said, I asked them, please just don't forget about us. Don't forget about us. And that stuck with me. Is there something or something that someone has said to you while you were there that has stuck with you? Well, you know, our interpreter, 28-year-old, lovely young lady, um, school teacher who isn't working because of the war, was giving us a hand with interpretation. And, you know, we, we uh, took an evening um, and went out to see her mom and dad uh, and her grandma um, out in this little village. And we sat around, um, you know, the living room just chatting and and uh, it, it was bleak. It was absolutely bleak. This wonderful family, when they started talking about their daughter's future and the daughter, you know, um, Swilana said, we want to start a family. She's married, just recently married. They want to start a family. And she goes, I have no idea if I'll ever be a mother. Um, and then what really uh, broke up um, uh, our videographer, who is a CTV reporter, um, um, uh, Swilana was saying, I went to the grocery store the other day to, to buy some pasta and I only bought one bag because I didn't know if I would need a second bag if I'd be here tomorrow. Oh my God. Like, yeah, yeah, that's that's what we're dealing with. That's why we must stand with Ukraine. We must provide humanitarian needs and we must provide whatever means necessary so they can get on with their uh, peaceful existence. Most definitely. I have to let you go very shortly here, Bob, but Tell the country what we can do to help and support. Um, th there are a number of, of, of organizations, Red Cross, Doctors Without Borders, and of course my favorite, Global Medic. If you've got a dollar you can spare, go online. Uh, you know, uh, Contribute that and then get hold of your MP. Tell them, let's not forget about Ukraine. Let's get behind them with whatever they need. Bob, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing and you continue to do. On behalf of all of us, you are a great ambassador for Canadians and this country. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, sir. All the best. All the best to you. That was Bob Beckett. He is a former fire chief for Langford on Vancouver Island, did a humanitarian aid trip over to Ukraine, recently returned with Global Medic. And man, what a powerful testimony what he witnessed over there. We have lots more to come on the Evan Solomon Show. Of course, this voice isn't Evan's. I'm Stefan Keys, CTV news anchor here in Ottawa. But coming up after the break, we talk to Mary Ng. That's Canada's Minister of Small Business Export, Promotion, and International Trade. She'll get us up to speed about the U.S. lifting tariffs on Canadian solar products and what that means for all of us here at home. Thank you for listening. We'll be back after this. Don't go anywhere. The Evan Solomon Show continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Sitting in for Evan Solomon, here's special guest host, Stephen Keyes. Welcome back to the Evan Solomon Show. We really appreciate you tuning in. I'm Stephen Keyes here in Ottawa, filling in for Evan, who has to be away today. And right now we're going to break 
things down when it comes to the United States, lifting tariffs on Canadian solar products. And this comes after a trade dispute settlement that the panel sided with Ottawa earlier this year. So this is a win for our country. Canadian Trade Minister Mary Ng joins us on the line to tell us more about this big win. Minister Ng, welcome to the show. Thank you for being with us. Hello, Stefan. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. I can hear the thrill in your voice. Clearly, you are very happy about this latest development. Tell us how it came to be. Well, I certainly am. I'm happy that uh, the U.S. has removed the safeguard tariffs on Canadian solar products. I might remind your listeners that this is the last of the Trump-era tariffs. Mm -hmm. And um, for the solar industry, these tariffs really severely impacted them. So uh, we're pleased that the dispute settlement uh, uh, favored Canada. And, of course, uh, once we win a process, we have to then work with the United States in this case to figure out how to implement this. And this implementation means that the safeguard tariffs are going to be removed. And uh, this is really good because Canada and the U.S. are really committed to fighting climate change together. And we know how important solar is going to be. We know how important the Canadian solar industry is going to be and how they can uh, become more integrated uh, with the United States. And then as we are building together and certainly a green future together, a green energy future together, that the Canadian solar industry will be a part of that. Clearly, this aligns with some of our goals in terms of helping to fight climate change and some of the commitments we have made on that end. For our listeners who are tuning in right now, they're sitting at home, they're thinking about inflation, the struggle to pay their bills, the high price of gas. Explain to them why they should care about this in particular. Well, let me start um, by saying that for Canadians who are uh, thinking about uh, the prices uh, at the pumps and just the day-to-day cost of living, that I think about this every day. My government thinks about this every day. Mm-hmm. It's part of, uh, it's, it's why we have put together an affordability plan. You may have already heard the Deputy Prime Minister talk about this. So whether it is affordable early learning and childcare, uh, saving Um, saving money for those working families or the Canada child benefit that's indexed to inflation or helping seniors with a 10% increase to their OAS or helping uh, working uh, workers with the low, uh, the, um, the low, uh, the, the the Canada workers benefit and helping uh, those workers. Uh, So affordability is very much on all of our minds. But we're also building an economy of the future that is going to be more green. And we want, and the solar industry is very much a part of that. They create great Canadian jobs. And here, what we want to do is we want to make sure that, uh, and what this decision will do is help this industry thrive some more. And, uh, and that is going to create great jobs for Canadians. Something to look forward to on that end for sure. Was this a tough fight? You know, we called it a Trump era implementation of policy. It almost sounds like it could have been extended by the Biden administration. Was it a tough sell to claw back on this, saying it's a violation of the agreement, the the pact, the USMCA pact that we have? Well, this is why we have um, Kuzma. This is why this agreement is so important. This is why when we were negotiating this agreement, we worked so hard to keep in place the dispute settlement system that actually helps us uh, adjudicate 
and deal with issues like this when disagreements come forward, which is why we're really pleased that the that in this dispute, it absolutely uh, ruled in Canada's favor. And, uh, and now we have these tariffs um, removed. But here in Vancouver, in fact, today, mm-hmm. um, welcoming both the United States and Mexico, we are here to celebrate the second anniversary of Kuzma. Here we have the Free Trade Commission. I, uh, the world is talking about friendshoring. And I think that they can look at Kuzma as the original friendshoring agreement. I mean, we're talking about a relationship between Canada, U.S., and Mexico that's incredibly successful. For Canada, there's no closer trading relationship than that of the U.S. and Mexico. It works. I mean, $1.9 trillion of goods and services crossed our borders, our three borders, last year in 2021. So we're here. I'm hosting my colleagues in Ambassador Tai and uh, Secretary Coutier. And uh, we're going to keep working together to make sure that this agreement works for our three countries and the workers and the businesses who benefit from this agreement. The Three Amigas, tell us more about that relationship and how that trip is going. Well, the Three Amigas, for sure. Um, I am with Secretary Cloutier this morning. We are meeting with uh, some really terrific Canadian businesses. I think it's always wonderful when you can actually see those businesses that are doing business in our respective countries and hearing directly from them. I will be welcoming Ambassador Tai a little later today. Um, and this is the three of us working, uh, as you said, as the three amigas on the Free Trade Commission. And, uh, and we're also in tandem hosting a Women's Entrepreneurship Summit. So um, three, all three countries have each have delegations of women entrepreneurs. They are going to be uh, working alongside us as we do the work of, uh, of uh, the Free Trade Commission, and they are going to be looking at how they can further deepen the trade investment relationship um, as women entrepreneurs. What's next on your list to tackle, Minister Ng, in terms of benefiting Canadians on whole for your portfolio? I think what uh, I've always uh, worked on tackling is helping Canadian businesses start up, scale up, and access those those new markets. This relationship between Canada and the United States is extremely important, helping our Canadian businesses grow into these markets, particularly our small businesses, and doing so in a way that is inclusive. So making sure that Indigenous businesses, young entrepreneurs, racialized businesses, women entrepreneurs all get the benefits of trade, uh, that is my work, and, uh, and I look forward to doing that every single day. All right. Well, I know the country looks forward to seeing the results of that. We all benefit if that is successful. All the best in your work and and hosting your fellow Amigas. Thank you so much, Stefan. It's really terrific to talk to you. I'm glad that I was able to share with Canada um, the uh, the really good decision about the removal of these tariffs. And we appreciate your time, Minister. Thank you. Take care. All right. Thanks so much. If you're just joining us, we just finished speaking with Mary Ng. That's Canada's Minister of Small Business, Export Promotion and International Trade short form, our trade minister, she has just been able to get back those tariffs lifted, rather. So U.S. is going to lift tariffs on Canadian solar products. In the minister's words, she says this is a great development from for the country. This is a clawback of the Trump administration applying those tariffs that they said was in violation of the agreement that they have and definitely created some tense times with the relationship between Canada and the U.S. And she says when it comes to you at home and the trickle-down effect, it's a win for everyone because it means more jobs will be created in that industry at less of a cost when trying to trade 
with the U.S. with having those tariffs lifted. We'll see if it comes to fruition and how that plays out overall. We're getting close to the end of the show here. I'm Stefan Keys filling in for Evan Solomon. We have a fun segment coming up, and I want to hear from you about it. Text 71010 to let us know your thoughts on this. Think about it as we head into break, because would you belt it out on a bus? Public transit? Take public transit and belt out your favorite tune, karaoke style? Because that's exactly what's happening in Calgary. They're calling it the karaoke bus. It's rolling into town. This is a pilot project. Some people love it. Some people hate it. I imagine that if you don't have the greatest singing voice in the world, that it would not be pleasant to have a 20-minute ride and have back-to-back passengers get up there belting their favorite tune if it's not pleasing to the ear. But some people are having a blast with this. They say they're having so much fun, and they want to see more of it coming up. So tell us what you think. Maybe text us your favorite song that you love to sing on karaoke. We're going to talk to Stephen Toro, the communications and information lead with Calgary Transit after the break. I am so intrigued by this. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. I'm Stefan Key, CTV News anchor, filling in for him today. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Evan Solomon Show. We have breaking news right now. CTV has confirmed that James Caan has died at the age of 82. He is the American actor best known for Godfather and Elf. His family posting this statement to Twitter. It is with great sadness that we inform you of the passing of Jimmy on the evening of July 6th. The family appreciates the outpouring of love and heartfelt condolences and asks that you continue to respect their privacy during this difficult time. Again, this just in. From CTV News, confirmation that James Caan, American actor, best known for Godfather, has passed away at the age of 82. This is The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Today with special guest host, Stephen Keyes. Karaoke bus rolling into Calgary for this pilot project. You're just listening to some of the tunes that people sing a karaoke style. How would you like to hear that for the duration of the commute to work on public transit? Stephen Toro, communications and information lead with Calgary Transit, joins us on the line. Tell us a little bit more about how this idea came to be, Stephen. Yeah, really, uh, it was. Uh, it's quite the um, quite the initiative here. Uh, we were challenged with, um, you know, the pandemic coming off of two hard years, uh, really trying to attract ridership back and, uh, you know, building back a better transit system. And we thought, hey, you know, like, why not create a little bit more fun, uh, you know, fun environment, something that customers could uh, experience and enjoy and share um, on their social media and, you know, with their families and try to um, 
create a little bit of FOMO, I think, uh, on transit and, and attract uh, new riders. Now, how do you how do people find the bus? Is it going to be on a particular route? People, well, I think, that enjoy karaoke are going to want to be on that bus in particular. Yeah, totally. I, um, there is an element of surprise, so we're not telling people where it's going to be. Uh, uh, we want to just sort of generate that excitement uh, naturally on social media. Uh, but we do have plans to put it in route next week. Uh, it won't be replacing our regular service, but it'll just be an added bus. So customers do have the option of riding that or taking their regular bus. Uh, and we are offering uh, free fare on that as well. So if you know people want to jump on, watch entertainment, or even join in, drop a couple verses, um, you know, it's up to them. So explain that to me. So if along a particular route, there could be maybe. Are you saying there are two buses and then you could get on the regular one or choose to hop on the party bus? Exactly. Yeah, we're just adding it into regular service. So the regular service will run and this will just be an added trip along the way. So they'll run regular alongside regular routes. So uh, customers that are on those routes and need to get to where they need to go uh, will still be able to do that while enjoying some music. And is this already up and running in time for Stampede? Well, see, this is the best part is the timing worked out fantastic. So we did the launch yesterday, and uh, the first trip will, will be uh, next week during the Stampede. So people are already in the party mood. That, um, you know, people familiar with Calgary and, and what that event means to, you know, Calgary's community is, is massive. So uh, people are in the party mood. I think it's going to be really successful next week. Uh, we're going to see some some great things. And I guess having the two options there, you know, get the regular bus or the karaoke bus, kind of quells people's fears around singing being a super spreader of the virus. We know COVID-19 hasn't gone away. People are talking about the summer wave and the subvariant BA5 for Omicron. So if you're uncomfortable, you're not going to be stuck on a bus of people belting it out. Yeah, totally. And, you know, we understand some people don't like uh, off-key singing or uh, <laughs> get, some like people don't like off-key singing <laughs> not everyone <laughs> yeah <laughs> or like a quiet commute so uh, that's why we decided not to remove service and just give that option to customers okay okay so is there i gotta ask this because i do a little bit of singing myself is there a particular song that you would belt out on the bus or on this radio show at this point in time <laughs> Well, I'm a sucker for uh, It's Gonna Be Me, I <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. I guess if I put you up to that, I got to share what I would sing. I typically sing Mustang Sally. You know that one? Yeah, I do know that one. Oh, my gosh. That's, that, that is my tune. Mustang <laughs> Sally. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, buddy. Oh, my goodness. So I'm supposed to be visiting Calgary at the end of the month. I need to find this karaoke bus because that sounds like the place to be yeah it's, it's fantastic we we uh rigged it up with lights uh you know the t onboard television uh it, it has a special wrap on it as well so it's it's really really noticeable and uh yeah it's, it sounds great too so if all goes well with the pilot project where, where do you take it from here we're going to see more karaoke buses popping up around the city well, you know, like this uh, this whole package that we're working on uh, for improving the customer experience, uh, we, we really want to try out different things. Like last month, we launched a puppy bus. So we teamed up with one of uh, the local agencies who does um, animal rescue, and uh, we had puppies on the bus, outside of the bus, on, on fake grass, where customers could come and pet uh, 
pet and play with puppies on their way to uh, work or whatever. And it, that was really well received. So, you know, we're tossing around different ideas, uh, different things that we're looking at even maybe a cash cab type of uh, event as well. So um, at this point, it's limitless and, and it's really up to our cr- creativity. So we're excited about this. Holy smokes, puppy bus. That sounds amazing. It almost sounds like it's time to move back to Calgary. (laughs) (laughs) After living there for two years, I had a ton of fun. Uh, Puppy bus, karaoke bus. This all sounds great. And I imagine the feedback, aside from people's concerns, has been overwhelmingly good. Yeah, and, and, you know, like that's the best thing about it is customers are really excited about it. They're, um, you know, they're showing up smiling. What what better way to to uh, experience transit? And, you know, I've always said transit is is like the heart of a, a great city and to have something vibrant uh, and, you know, with having the station activations and all of that stuff, it really creates, uh, you know, a great environment and, and something more than just taking a bus from A to B. Okay. So the cash cab, you usually get uh, tossed out when you have three strikes or after three strikes? (laughs) Well, remember, this is an added service, so there's always a bus (laughs) before (laughs) or after. (laughs) Sounds good. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. I am going to find that bus when I'm in Calgary at the end of the month. Awesome. Thank you very much. All right. Take care, Stephen. That brings us to the end of the Evan Solomon Show. If you want to listen back to any part of today's show, you can always download and subscribe to the Evan Solomon Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your podcast. Keep listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I'm Stefan Keys filling in for Evan Solomon today. Thank you so much for having me. Enjoy your day.